Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Aquarius Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Reed. For those of you that follow the show on Facebook or Instagram, you may have noticed my pictures from the Greater Seattle Aquarium Society annual auction that was held on Saturday, April 21st. This auction was amazing. I couldn't have guessed that we would have close to 900 items for sale in the auction. Items range from guppies, plecos, African cichlids, caradina shrimp, which I'm sure had to be some of the highest priced items there that went for sale, to old aquarium books, plants upon plants upon plants, to a few hodgepodge box of stuffs. This auction even had a wonderful piece of original artwork from one of the founding GSAS members. I guess if I had to give perspective, it was like a regular monthly auction times 10. Not only did I snag great deals on crypts, Valisinaria, and Driftwood, but I was also able to engage with the auction by volunteering to be an item runner for close to an hour. And I certainly wasn't the only one to do so. There was a healthy rotation of people flowing through this job, so no one person had to spend the entire auction running items. So, your first step is to attend a fish club auction. Your second step is a challenge. Volunteer to run some items and help the auction be that much smoother. And hey, when you run items, you also get an up-close look at something you may wish to bid on. So before we get on to the interview, I would like to thank everyone who has subscribed, liked, or is following this podcast. If you aren't already doing so, please like and follow the Aquarist Podcast Facebook page as well. For those who have created a Podbean account just to follow this show, a big thank you to you all as well. Now on to the interview. Today's date is Tuesday, April 10th, 2018. My guest today is Heather Burke. Heather is a passionate aquarist and keeper of a wide variety of animals from cockroaches to snakes. Heather has also worked several years in retail fish stores, having helped run quarantine departments among many other responsibilities. She also enjoys getting out into nature and catching local native fish in her home state of Michigan. In addition, she has also shared her knowledge with other fish keepers by speaking at fish clubs in the U.S. and Canada. Heather, welcome to the Aquarius Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much for uh, taking the time to to come on the show and talk about your background and experience in the hobby. So you you definitely have um, a really cool list of things and accomplishments that you've done, and I you know I definitely want to dig in and, and talk about some of these items. So I, I guess where did it all start for you? So how did you get involved in the uh, tropical fish hobby? Yeah. So um, for me, the hobby a lot of people like it started. Um, like their parents or someone they know keeps fish and that kind of rubs off on them. Um, but for me, it was very self-driven and, um, my interest in fish is, is stems from an interest in all animals. And, um, I learned that I could sort of get away with keeping lots of fish tanks. Um, but it started out, I think when, I want to say it was a goldfish bowl and then it was a betta bowl early in my childhood and we just kind of won, you know, prizes at the fair and I didn't think a whole lot of it. And then one day I kind of revisited that when I was um, with my sister at like the local supermarket that also sold fish. And I remember specifically conning her into buying me a fantail goldfish and um, it was really cheap and she was always better with, with money than I was as a kid. She always kind of had a little stash and I was like, Hey, wouldn't it be cool if we had this little goldfish? And um, it's kind of from that little con that I, I sort of introduced fish into the household. And then I I, I kind of, um, I, I took over, even though I kind of convinced her to buy that fish. It became, my, it was my fish. Um, it only lasted for about a week. And then, um, and then I started getting, like, I started hitting the books. I went to the library and checked out about every book imaginable 
on fish and sort of taught myself how to do better next time. And um, uh, when I was 12, I got my first actual fish tank, I think after my dad realized that I had this really keen interest. And so when we started going back to the supermarket, I would go back and look at the fish again. And I would just be like identifying all these random fish that are in with the feeder fish and thinking about how I could set up a tank of mosquito fish, you know, gambusia, which aren't glamorous fish by any means, but they were definitely cool to me. Um, I, I just started developing this really keen interest and eye for fish. And um, my dad recognized that and sort of gifted me like a five and a half gallon tank which was my first actual like aquarium, not like a bowl. Um, you know, we got like a, I want to say we had like an internal filter. It wasn't like a sponge. It was like one of those cheap ones that like um, has like a little bit of carbon. It is run through. Anyway, it was, it was a neat little setup, but it wasn't, it wasn't, um, it wasn't until I was 13 that I kind of got my first like proper setup. And it was a 29 gallon tank that my, uh, I think my dad's been kind of instrumental in getting me going with a hobby, even though he wasn't necessarily a fish hobbyist himself. Um, but uh, yeah, the 29-gallon tank uh, is kind of where my first accidental spawns happened. And uh, from there, I, I started getting into like tropical fish hobbyist magazines. And then I started... Um, looking into the back of those magazines and they have like a, a directory on uh, where are the local fish clubs and state by state. And I found, um, I distinctly remember the moment when I found uh, the Southwestern Michigan Aquarium Society in Michigan. And I thought, well, this isn't too far. Um, and then I got online and you know, get the dial up going and <laughs> you get on the internet and you look it up and sure enough, they, they've got like a, a meeting site and they've got a, a date and a time for the next meeting for the month and um i remember kind of exciting like getting off logging off the internet and then taking the you know the phone the landline because we didn't have cell phones and uh i want to say this was like 2005 2006 and um called up my dad and kind of like begged him to take me to the meeting and um i guess the rest is history <laughs> and then it was and I showed up and um, it was kind of crazy because, you know, being that I was about 14 at the time and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a young female. My dad just dropped me off in this, <laughs> this like uh, technology room from this in this college in uh, Kalamazoo. And I show up early and I'm not really sure what I'm, what I'm doing, where I am, but I'm just kind of waiting for the action to start. And then slowly you see all these kind of older men trickle in and <laughs> realize kind of, oh, okay, I guess uh, there's not really a lot of people my age, but it didn't, you know, it didn't deter me. And I was, you know, some of my best friends, um, you know, stemmed from that. And uh, yeah. Do you remember um, what the uh, talk was the night of your first fish club meeting? I don't remember. It's really sad. I, I want to say amongst some of my first talks, there was a talk on pelvic acromas, the, the genus. Um, but that particular night, I, I I think the thing that really caught my attention was that there's these things called mini auctions. And everyone comes in and brings in their bags of fish every month that they auction off that are either spawns that they're witnessing, um, getting points for. 
Um, so it's kind of like this competition that's ongoing and people are trying to get their their spawns recognized and then be breeder of the year or whatever. But for me, it was like coming in and, oh, there's there's fish here and they're on the table and they were so cheap. And it was like, I think that night I bought a $2 bag of Iliadon fursidens, which um, for those unfamiliar is actually kind of an ugly mm, I mean, depends on who you ask, but it's a good deal. <laughs> it's not the nicest fish. Yeah, I want to thank you for uh, recently I've been trying to plug um, joining your local fish club. So that's a part of my outro. And, and any chance I get to say that people need to join their local fish club, uh, you, very mm-hmm. early on in this episode, you just gave me that opportunity talking about the auctions. Um, again, if you are not oh, yeah. a part of your local fish club and you have one in your area, you're that fortunate enough to have one in your area because some people, um, there aren't any fish clubs. You really, really want to join um, so you can talk to all, you know, all the, the, the fish nerds in your area, but then also take part in the really fun auctions after um, and buy some plants and buy the, uh, the spawns. You know, very, very inexpensive. Um, unless a guest speaker brings something super exotic, then that may go for, you know, pretty penny. But for the most part, I mean, you're going to get fish much cheaper than you would in the retail store. So thank you, Heather, for giving me that chance to plug. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> to plug joining your <laughs> local fish club. Yeah, but, um, but I mean, it's true. When you're talking about, you know, how I got into the hobby, there's kind of a blur of like what I did before the fish club and then everything that happened after. And it was so much growth once I joined the club and it was so like it was awesome because people enable you (laughs) and once you start getting that multiple tank syndrome people are like oh you know I got these tanks you can have or they'll sell them to you really cheap or next thing I know I had 20 tanks in my bedroom as you know in high school so it's yeah I will um, say one of the biggest one of the biggest problems though with the auctions is uh, you don't necessarily have enough tank real estate for what you want to buy and what you may be bidding on. So I've actually bid on some fish that I lost, and I was actually kind of glad that I did because I didn't have a tank set up for them. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. But <laughs> it was just you get caught up in the moment of the auction, and you're like, oh, I want that fish, but you're not really thinking, and yeah, you're, you're um, not. <laughs> fish is a, yeah, fish is a different story. I just mean, like, for some reason, I was able to blow up from, like, one or two tanks to all of a sudden, you know, 20 and then once I got to college and then actually was able to live off campus and have my own, you know, sort of space for fish tanks again, um, dorms don't necessarily let you keep like 20, 30, 40 fish tanks. Well, I think there's um, a, I had, yeah. I think there's a critical mass. Like once you get so many tanks, whoever you're uh-huh. living with, whether it's your parents or your significant other, if they're not in the hobby and they're not counting how many tanks you have exactly, like once you get beyond, I don't know, six, seven tanks, they all start to look the same and it, it, it all starts to blend and it's just this massive aquarium so then you can sneak in one or two extra aquariums and they don't notice yep absolutely that's totally what i did i think one of my funnier moments was i brought home like a i went to meyer which is the super store or a supermarket i was talking about earlier but uh uh it's local to Mich- it's like in michigan indiana anyway um brought home a sick tote and this is a storage tote and i'm like yep and i like in the car and then I get home and it's a quarantine tank now. <laughs> yeah, it, <laughs> On does, the floor it, <laughs> it doesn't have to be pretty. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about no. quarantine tanks <laughs> a little bit later, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's a very good point. If you know, it's going to be something that's temporary, as long as your filter media is good. Yeah. You can use that as a quarantine tank. So I want to take a step back. Um, and you said mm-hmm. your, what was your first breeding accident that you said your first spawn? Yeah, I kind of alluded to that. Um, so that was another, uh, definitely what motivated me to seek out the fish clubs. Um, and the local um, aquarium societies in general. Um, 
it's just once I started having fish that were having babies, then I was like, well, I can breed all these fish. And I don't know. It was like a flip, a switch flip, like in my head. It was like, it was like um, suddenly there was all these new things I could explore with fish. And suddenly it was, you know, I could, I could watch the development of all these, these various fishes. And, but yeah, the first, the first spawns were accidental. And I, I want to say my first fish I put in the tank was like a molly and she dropped her fry like over like the next couple of days she dropped some fry. I think I was out of town. My dad like sent me like a, like he, I think he, he called me and was like, so there's like these little fish in here. And I was away and I was like, what? <laughs> and I was freaking out. And then, uh, um, I don't, I think because I was out of town, my dad didn't really know what to do with them, but then, you know, I had some platies in there and they started having babies and the live bears were definitely an easy first actual spawn. But the one that really sticks out to me was that I had zebra danny that was accidentally spawned in my community tank. And I think that's what led me down the path where now I talk about danios a lot, um, specifically because I just really, really loved these fish. And if you never spawn like an egg scattering fish, um, their fry are unrecognizable when you first see them. So, you know, I, I went from looking at these little teeny library fry to all of a sudden I was looking at my tank one day and there was like this little sliver, little black, like little line on the side of the tank. And I remember staring at it and um, one of the adult female zebra danios came up. I know she was female because she was really fat <laughs> and came up and snapped it off the glass. And uh, then I realized I wasn't seeing things. There was something there that she just ate. <laughs> um, from then on, I started experimenting a little bit, and I was finding more fry. And um, I was kind of then I was trying to set out to raise them, but it was totally accidental. And those are, I don't know, they're just such an awesome group of fish. So, what else is it about the the zebra daniels that you really like? Yeah. So, I mean, the Getting them in the first place, I think, was just like a power of suggestion thing. I think my dad, while he wasn't really a fish hobbyist, had mentioned in passing that he looked over, he looked after a friend's fish tank in college, and that tank had zebra daniels, and he always liked those. And I was like, oh, okay. So when I went to, I think I went to like Petco or something to get most of my first fish, um, I was like, all right, let's get some zebra daniels in there. And, um, you know, they're they're kind of subtle, um, but they're very beautiful when you look at them. Um, even being as common of a fish as they are, um, there's a reason they're, they're, they've been in the hobby as long as they have. Um, and even to the extent where they're like one of the most popular model organisms for aquatic animals. Like if you go to, you know, any university, like there's going to be labs that use these fish. They're just ubiquitous. They're everywhere. Um, but you know, the males are just kind of goldish color when they're mature and the females are very silvery and they've had these just awesome blue stripes. But uh, I think the best thing, I mean, they're schooling fish. Um, you know, you don't have to deal with much aggression when it comes to Daniels. Sometimes they can chase things around a little bit, but for the most part, they're a very peaceful group of fish. They can work in a lot of tanks. And um, I think it was my following spawns when I started working with uh Celestichthys, which is the, um, they were grouped as Daniel at one point. Um, Celestichthys, Margaritatis, the Celestial Pearl Daniel, um, which that became my my favorite fish of all time. And I got it uh, right around the time I was, I want to say, 
15 or 16, right when they were like new to the hobby. And uh, that really hooked me once I started working with those fish. And then I wanted erythromicron. And then I started wanting other like fire. I ended up with fire ring danios pretty early on, spawned them, uh, pearl danios. I think I just learned from an early um, point, an early stage in my hobby and uh, my journey as a hobbyist um, that these were very easy to spawn fish. They spawn in large numbers most of the time. Uh, Marguerite has um, well, so sick these genus in general being kind of an exception because they're so small, but um, and also they're maybe a little different, but they're still kind of grouped with the Danios. Um, so let's say I wanted to get because I've never kept uh, any of the Danios, and it's definitely a fish okay, that, uh, yeah. that's on my list of something that I would like to keep. Uh, but let's say somebody mm-hmm. out there listening already has some Danios. Um, so I guess my first question would be, and, and you've alluded to it a little bit. Um, uh, is the breeding, uh, how you spawn them, how you care for them, I guess the husbandry to go beyond just having this really cool schooling fish and wanting to actually have successful mm-hmm. spawns, um, is it kind of the same mm-hmm. across? Uh, and, and then I guess whether it is or not, I guess if you could kind of walk through um, what a successful tank setup looks like and then maybe what the steps are um, once they do, once you get eggs or once you get, um, you know, you start seeing wigglers. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so... When I was saying the first accidental spawns, I mean, I think the reason that they started, the fry started showing up. So that was a situation where I just had them in a community tank and I wasn't trying to breed them. And they were just, they were overwhelming the system with fry, I guess. Um, a lot of times if you have a heavily planted tank, you know, with a lot of these species, fry just appear. Um, danios are very popular for like patio ponds. Uh, people usually put giant danios because you can still kind of see them because they're a good size, but then they just, they just, reproduce, reproduce, reproduce. Uh, and then the fry just sort of appear. Um, but a lot of times, because they're an egg-scattering fish, and because they're also, as I was describing with my first experience, finding a fry, uh, very uh, eager to eat their own fry. <laughs> they're, you know, um, pretty typical fish in the sense that they're they're not going to take care of them. So a lot of times when you're setting up these spawns, you want to have a way to trap the eggs, um, whether that's a great whether that's uh, marbles or what, you know, in my case, it was just coarse gravel um, that they were able, the eggs were able to fall between the crevices and then the fish were unable to go back and, and extract them and eat them. How about a yarn, um, uh, a yarn spawning mop? Is that because I, I use a floating uh, yarn, yarn uh, mop for a uh, rainbow fish. Could you do the same without mm-hmm. the floating aspect of it? Or do you need uh, uh, what you described? So the thing about, so you do want, um, either a moss or a mop or some sort of vegetation some, or whether it be fake or real doesn't super matter to the fish. Um, but what they're going to do is they're going to spawn around it and they're going to kind of use that as like their, their sort of like checkpoint. This is where we're going to release the eggs, but they're not going to actually stick to the, to the mop, to the moss. It's going to fall. And you may have a few that kind of fall amongst the moss and they don't turn around and eat them right away, but those are most likely to get eaten. So it's the ones that fall underneath whatever the trap, the grate, um, uh, if they fall in between marbles, between coarse ice. What I love to do is I love to just get that like um, pea gravel that they sell and the uh, like um, lawn care uh, garden centers. Um, especially around springtime. So this is a great time um, to take up 
you do have to wash it really, really well, but um, it's cheap and it's a good size. And then the, I'm not talking like river cobble, like just, just pea gravel. Um, and that, that's what I use for a lot of my spawning. I would just do species only tanks um, because when, when they're in communities, obviously there's, if the parents aren't going to eat the fry, then you have catfish that might eat the fry or you have tetras that might eat the fry. So, um, but um, there is, so the one thing worth mentioning is that a lot of these fish, um, they're probably not going to get rich spawning them. You know, uh, that's one of the things I think that sort of drew me also um, was when I realized that and you go to any of these auctions, these club meetings and things, and you notice that there's lots of cichlids, there's lots of live bears, but there's um, there's really no representation in the Cypridae family. Um, you might get a few goldfish, you might get a few random loaches or some hillstream loaches because, you know, people can get money for them. But if you have a bag of zebra daniels, like, they're mass-produced by, you know, thousands, millions, and they can cost, you know, dimes, pennies, um, to to whoever, you know, to suppliers. So it's just, it's not economical. It's not going to make you rich to breed them. But um, but there's really not a representation of it in the hobby. And so that was something that made me want to talk about them. You know, like, well, why is that? Now, even um, though even though they yeah. maybe they didn't command like the highest price um, at an auction or, mm-hmm. or in a retail setting. But uh, to yep. me, I feel like the demand is still there, though, because it is a community it fish. Is. And it's something that mm-hmm. somebody can buy just for the, you know, the sake of, hey, I can at least buy something at this auction that isn't, you know, a super aggressive African cichlid or, you know, this particular Southeast Asian, Asian fish that needs a, a pH of like four, right? It needs just like straight yep. acid. So um, yeah. at least if you want to get into, into fish breeding, and I think this is kind of the model I'm taking when I call things like my breeding for karma tank is that I just want to breed mm-hmm. for the, for the fun of breeding. Um, you know, I, I honestly, I, I thought I was maybe going to try to take some fish in just for store credit to help me out buying food. But honestly, like, I, I think mm-hmm. I'm going to go more to, and just do donations to my local fish club auction. Um, and, and just to have fun for the sake of breeding. But what I'm getting at is I want to make sure though, that I'm breeding things that people are actually going to want even if it's a low price. Like I've I've seen cichlids in my local club mm-hmm. auction go you know a dollar. Nobody took these cichlids for a dollar because they're just them. not yeah. they're just not popular yep. in my area. Yeah. Um and it's really it's it's a tougher fish where if you're doing zebra danios or um even guppies like those are you know when when they're non-aggressive community fish it's so mm-hmm. easy to um to get somebody to take those off your hands. Oh yeah. Everyone can use them. I mean they're they are useful as dithers. I, I tell that um, I tell people that when I give my Danio talk is you know, besides the satisfaction of having your own massive school of fish that you produced uh, homegrown. So uh, a lot of times I'll mention in my talks that zebra Danios are great dither fish for one. Um, there's pretty much pretty much anyone can can use them in some capacity, whether it's to distract their cichlids, or just to appreciate them on their own, or to put it in the tank for their kid. Yeah, I think that's totally true. And I think there is, you know, something to be said about general public getting involved in in these auctions and showing up and not and they're taking home something and they're not realizing, hey, this fish is going to beat up everything in my tank. But, yeah, there's there's always a market for them. That's something I always emphasize, too. Um, And there are, you know, there are species that do command higher dollar, especially with the popularity of nanotanks. Um, if you have 
like the, the celestial pearl banios, those are consistently really good sellers. Um, and they're not hard to raise. Um, and they're, they're red, they breed very readily and they're just a beautiful fish. And there's, you know, my thing is <laughs> I seek out like all these oddball species and, um, for the right buyer, I mean, they're worth something. Yeah, totally. And now I'm sorry, I distracted you there and got you a little bit off topic. So on the, uh, okay. on the breeding of the zebra Daniel. So once we, once we set up a system to collect the eggs, are you then pulling them or are you leaving them in there to hatch out? I usually pull them. So there's a couple, there's a few ways you can do it. Um, you could just do the lazy method and just have your tank so full of plants that the fish can barely move. And then they're shy that they really, they can't get. Um, and they just appear and you're not going to get like the largest, uh, yield that way, but you will get fry if you just let them appear sometimes. But what I usually do is I usually take a siphon to the coarse gravel or marbles and I'll siphon them out. And that's kind of my cheap way of doing it. I didn't really have any fancy altered setups with like these nice false bottoms or something. And then they just drop off. I know people who do that. And I think that that's an awesome way to do it too. Um, but either way, you're going to have to either remove the parents or remove the fry. Um, it's one or the other. And then typically, so once you've pulled the eggs, then, I mean, to me, that sounds like the, the more preferred method, especially if somebody doesn't have, you know, a, a too many tanks to be moving around, you know, full size. Shuffling, adult parents. Yeah. yeah. I don't like disrupting. So if you, the thing about Daniels is they'll breed periodically. I mean, pretty frequently, like they'll just go for like days at a time and, um, I don't really like to interrupt that, you know, sometimes they'll have like one really, really massive spawn. Um, and that sort of leaves them spent for a little while, um, in which case just pulling them and then letting the fry come out is awesome. But if you're getting like lots of little spawns, especially with like celestial pearl daniels is a great example. I'll keep bringing up that fish, but, um, it's a cool fish. Any of the smaller, it's just my favorite fish, but any of the smaller daniels, the tin one eyes, the gold rings, uh, is a common name, or um, Chopre, Glowlight Danios, um, they all tend to have smaller numbers. And so I like to let them just kind of go every day or so. And then when I feel like pulling eggs, I'll pull eggs. And it's usually pretty consistent. You can find usually a few. Um, it can be a little more labor intensive. I usually, you know, siphon into a bucket and then get a turkey baster and a flashlight and some kind of Tupperware. And I just sort of based, like you'll kind of let all the detritus kind of swirl in the middle and then you'll kind of shine a light. And usually in the first pass, you can tell if there's eggs or if there's wigglers, if there's wigglers. So like up until they're about four or five days of age, they can be collected safely. Um, once they're past that stage, they're going to be free swimming, which means they're going to get eaten most likely. Um, so once they're like scooting around and the, when they're, when they're wiggling in the gravel and just, they're usually kind of down low and you can get them out and you can tell right away there's movement. Um, but when there's eggs and they're fresh eggs, sometimes they're small, sometimes the trace obscures it, take a turkey baster, put it into a, um, the Tupperware container, shine a light, try to blind yourself and have fun. <laughs> How many days does, uh, do the eggs take to go from hatch to wigglers or I'm sorry, to go from uh, a spawn to wigglers? Oh, yeah. Um, they usually hatch in 24, 48 hours. Um, and then uh, it it will take, I mean, they, when they hatch, 
they're wigglers, pretty much. And then the next stage is free swimming. So, um, so when I would when I would see the the fry in that first tank when I had them spawn in the community tank, a lot of times they were stuck to the glass. I kind of observed like early on with these fry that they would kind of hang on the side of the glass. Um, at least when they first hatch out, uh, they they're kind of, their movements are every now and again. I mean, if you think of wigglers with like cichlids and stuff like that, they they'll kind of rest and then wiggle around. Um, and that's kind of what these, these Daniel fry do. But I noticed that, um, if you turn off all the lights in the tank and then like wait like a half an hour, an hour and turn them back on, uh, that's when I would see like all the fry like lined up on the side of the glass. And that was kind of cool. I don't think that helps you collect them that much, but at least to know they're there. Yeah. That's a neat observation. Yeah. And then, so what kind of, uh, do you just have, uh, then the wigglers or, uh, the eggs that you collect off in like a smaller five gallon tank, and then you're just kind of rearing them up from there, um, like a grow out, if you will. Yeah. So my, my method, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty simple, but basically, um, when I'm collecting eggs, I'm kind of using like an eyedropper or a syringe. So I have my turkey base here to get like a bunch of the detritus and I sort through it with like, this sounds like a lot of work, but I really love doing this. <laughs> but so maybe it's not for everybody, but definitely if you're pulling out only like the healthy eggs um, and you'll know if they're not healthy because they'll just be completely white, um, fungus, whatever. Um, but you, I noticed with the Daniels, you don't get a lot of that. A lot of them are fertilized and good. And as long as that's the case, I put them in like a smaller Tupperware container. I label what they are. Like I take a Sharpie and I'll just write what it is. Um, we're talking like these little, those really small, like those Ziploc containers that are, you know, they, they're, they're, they're small. Yep. Um, they don't need to be huge. And then you just keep them at room temperature. I just keep them on the shelf, like where they're not going to get knocked over. Like I used to, used to have like a little closet at some shelves and then I put them on kind of a row there and I would write the date and I would just go back and check them. And when they hatched out and were wiggling, I'd dump them into a tank. Usually like a two and a half gallon. If there weren't like a ton. If there were a ton, yeah, five, ten. And last, I guess we'll just cover feeding. So what's the initial, um, once they get past the wiggler stage, what are you then feeding the, the free swimming yeah, so uh, once they're past uh, wiggling and they're they're about usually five to six days of age um, post spawn uh, is once they will start accepting food. Um, usually, I'll do like a very fine powdered or like a, a suspension, like a like a you can um, golden pearls are like my go-to. Um, usually, anywhere from like the fifty to a hundred micron. Um, if you go much higher than that, they can't a lot of the species starting out at least the first you know a few days of feeding can't seem to tackle it as well um you some people use like hard-boiled egg yolk where you can kind of like pinch it a little bit in the water so it's like it gives off this kind of milky little these little particles are kind of like suspended in the col- water column um people can you can use infusoria paramecium but yeah my go-to is always golden pearls I agree with you. Um, um, that's what I've used for yeah. the, the rainbow fry when yep. they're super tiny, the golden Great pearls. Stuff. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's just ready to go. You keep it in the fridge to keep mm-hmm. it fresh. And um, the, the rainbow fry have just gobbled it up. And now they're on uh, decap, decapsulated brine shrimp. 
Um, so I, I can't say enough good things about uh, Golden Pearls, and it's made it so I could keep a very difficult small fry and be able to successfully raise them up without having any like of the super small live cultures or anything like that. I did culture lots of microworms, and I did vinegar eels, and uh, I never really hatched brine shrimp myself personally um, because I found that like either instant brine or um, frozen brine, or baby brine, that is. Uh, worked pretty well um, in a lot of cases there. Um, yeah, so far I can't I can't complain with either one. Uh, golden pearls and decapsulated brine shrimp, and even in the show notes, if if you guys are interested, I'll I'll put uh, links to the two that I purchased. And you know, if you want to give them a shot, I'd highly recommend it. So Heather, I'm very interested to know about catching wild native fish in Michigan. So can can you walk me through what what's uh, what that's all about and um what that entails yeah so uh yeah I, I know i know you follow my instagram so you see a lot of posts of these are these darters or these minnows that i caught today and it's honestly it's been like every weekend for the past few weeks that i've tried to go out um it's kind of like that's my zen i love to do it but um um it, it's you know you pay so basically as long as you have an all species permit, um, and uh, you have a nice pair of waders and a dip net. Um, you're pretty much good to go. Um, you just gotta, you do have to kind of be careful about where you go. Um, I, yeah, I, I kind of like the idea of just going out there and being able to find, you know, catch your own fish kind of thing. Like that's just super awesome. Like some people fish for their food, and I fish for my aquariums. Um, so. You know, my my love of Danios kind of translates to all minnows, so uh, shiners, chubs, um, and darters are, you know, kind of like a little minnow of their own kind. Um, all really beautiful fish that are just pretty easy to access. Um, if you can fish there, for the most part, uh, you're fine to collect there. You do probably want to keep... Um, be aware of what are restricted things, what you can and cannot take. Um, a lot of times with these permits, it's just a basic fishing license to all species. Um, you know, you're not allowed to take baby game fish. So if you see like a uh, small bluegill, if you see small bass, um, you should take, you should put those back. If um, there are certain species that are like protected, um, there aren't a ton uh, where I am, but there's like certain um daces and things like that uh you kind of want to be aware of because you don't want to get caught taking an endangered animal as long as what you're going after is considered a bait fish you're not going to get in trouble have you ever had um actual like game fishermen come up to you and and think that you're catching fish for to use as bait and have they ever tried to buy any off you no that's never happened i have had times where you know i think the stupidest thing that ever happened it was like right after a fresh rain in like uh, the red cedar uh in lansing where i am it's 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 kind of known for being a more polluted river um being that it's it's runs through the capital of the state and um and you know in the past it was a very industrial place so it's, it's not always the nicest one to jump into as far as rivers are concerned um but i just remember i went in like after a rain so the water level was kind of stupid high and i was like all right i probably shouldn't be doing this but <laughs> i was kind of poking around and a lot of times i'll kind of take these sort of areas off of like a, a bike trail or like a you know a 
a walking like a hiking path or something like that and um i think one time there was like these fishermen that came up and they were they were trying to catch something like what are you doing and i i was like like waist deep in the water like uh (laughs) you know i wasn't really lying what i was doing it was just i'm you know i don't think they were interested in bait but i think they were kind of looking at me funny because there's this girl waist deep in this kind of dirty river right after a rainfall which is by the way kind of the worst time to go not just because it's more dangerous if the water level's higher um but also because it, a lot of times after a fresh rain it'll it'll wash like bacteria like e coli and stuff into the river so you want to give it i usually give it a few nice sunny days post rain before i jump in that's a that's a pro tip right there so if you want to do this in, yeah. your, in your local neighborhood <laughs> or your local area after a rain give it a couple days let that e coli <laughs> let that e coli wash away Good time. You just want the system to process it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so then you have a, t- a tank currently set up right now with some of these native Michigan fish. Yeah, I have a few. Um, so right now, uh, I'm living in an area. Uh, well, where I'm where I'm currently staying, um, my kind of preferred place to put fish tanks is kind of the bait. Well, a lot of people like the basement and the problem with where i am right now is my basement is really cold and it's not well insulated and i can crank the heat up all i want but it's not going to do much for the basement so uh like in the winter and lately it's been like the highs have been like 62 63 degrees so native fish are kind of perfect for it um so yeah i do i have uh, i want to say a couple 30 gallons um a few 20 longs uh, a couple uh, 10 gallons with just minnows uh kill you can catch killifish which is kind of cool so i've got a few native killies and some uh, mad toms yeah that's awesome so do you ever have any success breeding the the native fish and once you breed them is that something that you would take to your local fish clubs or i i guess that, that, that... that's a good okay so that's a good point to make. that seems um, like a very narrow so... um uh, band of buyers that would be interested in purchasing the native fish well, the problem is it's illegal to sell native fish. Ah, okay. So, this is very much for personal enjoyment. Um, I will say this time of year is a great time to get in the river because a lot of fish are in spawning mode, um, given that spring is, is here. I mean, we think. <laughs> they think a little bit. Um, they get all colored up and they're ready to go. I know a lot of people, what they'll do is they'll catch um, gravid female darters and brightly colored males and this can go for minnows too that are in the mood and they're already they're already ready to go so you just put them in a tank and let them do their thing um i have not personally had a lot of time to do this but i really want to and i just last weekend caught some nice green side darters and i'm hoping i can trick into spawning for me that's great. I think uh, I, I'm going to have a request for some Instagram photos. Heather, you need to uh, show off some of these cool native tanks and uh, some of the native fish that you're catching. I think uh, sounds, like, pe- sounds pe- good. Yeah. yeah, people would be really interested in seeing that. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's a, a native fish that I read about, and it was in Amazonas uh, Magazine last month, the Baron's Top Minnow. And it's this really beautiful, at least the male is like this really beautiful uh, green color. It's only found in like three or four spots in the, like the Tennessee High Plateau or whatever the geographic part was. Um, but it hasn't been put in the, um, in the endangered category yet, but it's, it's very much at risk. Um, and I really want to get my hands on a pair of those. I think the only people that have them right now, aside from if you go 
onto somebody's private property where one of these water sources is. It's like the Tennessee, mm-hmm. um, the Tennessee Aquarium and some of the other uh, like more official bodies actually have some breeding stock and they're breeding them and releasing them back into the wild. Um, but I think it's the mosquito fish that's out, um, out competing them and they're, and they're, uh, the native mosquito fish in their native area. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. but I really want to try to get my hands on some of those and try to breed them, um, and share them around here in my area so that, you know, worst case yeah. scenario, it's not just like one or two places in Tennessee that have them. And if something happens and it crashes, yeah. Hey, you've got some in Washington state and you know, there's a handful of collectors up here or aquarists, um, that also have these fish. So, Maybe we'll do a, let's do a joint road trip to Tennessee and see if we can go get some of those. Yeah. And you can, you can, you can buy like a, uh, you know, like a day permit or whatever, and you can go and collect. And if you're driving, it's a little easier to transport them back. If you're flying, which I did, I went to Florida and collected some fish and I snuck them in my socks in my suitcase. (laughs) I don't think anybody from TSA is listening to this, so (laughs) maybe you're safe. No, it was perfectly legal. I asked, and what okay. I did is I used breather bags. And as long as they're, um, I think I want to say a hundred milliliter, it has to be like whatever the volume of liquid is that you're allowed to take. It has to be that volume. Interesting. So you can't. You'd have like one fish in each bag. I mean, it wasn't. I don't know. It's not advised. Um, yeah, definitely if you're driving, it's a lot easier and transporting and tra- uh, for transporting. But um, the thing about native fish is that if it's native to your state, you cannot. Um, sell them, but you can give them to your friends. Yeah. Again, I mean, going back to my, my karma philosophy on this, I mean, it would be, especially for this fish, (laughs) it would be, Hey, like this thing is endangered. It's a, it's, you know, it's, it's one thing to help breed a, you know, native to Brazil fish or a native to Indonesia or something like that, but something native to the United States that we could potentially help out and breed, um, and spread around. I think that's really cool. So yeah, I got to try to get my hands on some of those. To kind of shift into some of your experience, uh, to to wrap this episode up in the quarantine room, um, and then maybe pivot and see what are some of the the tips and tricks that you would give to people to keep uh, to keep their fish healthy at home. So, um, I guess what was your experience like, you know, helping to to run a quarantine room in a large pet store? Uh, yeah. So, um, I I think you know for me that shaped a lot of a lot of my interest in fish health in general. Um, so I basically, I, I would run the quarantine, at least the freshwater side, uh, every weekend and as needed on weekdays when the normal, the regular weekly guy or weekday guy was, was out, uh, which happened fairly frequently. So, um, I was always kind of back there and, um, you know, this is a very, very busy pet store, um, and it's kind of nice. It was nice, at least working there, to kind of be able to go at my own pace a little bit and focus on the fish. And and um, and you would see all these different um, these issues that would come up, especially when you're looking at retail, especially when you're looking at fish that have just been shipped in from all over. Um, you get all sorts of things. Um, and for me, it was I always wanted to kind of tackle that 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 issue I wanted to figure out what do you do when this happens what do you so um it it informed a lot uh at least in um it informed kind of my own how I treat my own fish at home sort of methods and um uh, it was great it was a great experience um you know that all things considered, um, that being said, there were definitely disastrous weekends. You come in, there'd be a lot of dead fish, 
um, that had just been shipped in and overnight, you might lose half the batch or you might lose all of them um, for whatever reason. Um, so, uh, yeah, it kind of, you kind of see a lot of really, um, a lot of really interesting things. Yeah. I mean, it gives you the opportunity to, you know, try different methods of, of treating fish where in your home aquarium, you know, you, uh, I don't want to say they're the fish in your quarantine room are guinea pigs because you want to care for them. But at the same time, it's, um, maybe a little bit, it's a little bit of a different scenario, right? And the fact that you're doing it, um, yeah. as well, a part of your yeah. job, so you, you kind of refine the method over time. So like what would, what would happen is that over time you would learn what works for different fish. Um, and so when we're talking about the quarantine room, we're talking about like this kind of back room. Um, there's probably about, uh, maybe, maybe just shy of a hundred, probably, God, I wish I had, I had an exact count. I want to say there's like 40 or so tanks, maybe a little more. Um, but so you have all this tank space and, um, and it's all, it all drains from the bottom and it has like, it's plumbed and then you can re- refill with water that's been, uh, aged and primed and all that. Um, but yeah, over, over time you would, um, you would learn what works for this fish and what works for that fish. And you kind of develop like a method. And uh, so the quarantine room doesn't, doesn't even house all of the fish that get shipped in just because some of them don't, don't handle that well. Some of them don't like bare bottom tanks. Some of them um, need their pH matched to a specific. So a lot of blackwater fish, when they come in, like uh, cardinals and rumminos, um, discus, things like that, typically we would, we would um, acclimate um, sales floor, but we would have like specific tanks that would be, um, we would, we would, I, I know with the, with the, um, cardinals because their pH would come in. So they come in so low, they would get shocked and die if you put them in like a uh, seven pH, which is very neutral. Um, so we would like, we would check what their pH was, of water is that they came in. And then we try to match the water they're going in and we'd add things like vinegar to kind of like bring it down, you know? <laughs> Um, oh, I don't think but, I've ever heard of any uh, any stores going through that effort. I mean, and maybe other yeah. stores do this, but that seems like you know you're you're really yeah. going above and beyond to make sure that this fish has a has a good acclimation. Yeah. So yeah, that was uh, this is uh, Bruce Pets in Lansing um, that I worked for about three years, and a lot of my time was either in the breeding room because they produce a lot of their fish, at least the uh, a certain so. They either produce the fish that don't ship well, or they are trying to, so they don't have to ship them in at all, or they're trying to eliminate the problems with the uh, the fish that do get shipped in so that we, so yeah, they definitely do a lot for the customers in terms of the fish health. Do you have one or two species of uh, of, of, a, of a fish that doesn't ship well that, um, that they would breed in-house? Oh, yeah. And all the angels. Um, for the most part, um, there's like a, a virus that a lot of them that are imported tend to have. And if, if it gets to your angelfish, um, like the healthy ones that you have, like they all kind of catch it. It's like a, the thing about viral diseases, any fish that have those, um, you can't treat the virus. You have to treat the symptoms and hope for the best. So there were things like, so that was the reason why we breathe the angels. And then we had things like uh, all the live bears would frequently come in with flukes, like gill flukes. 
Um, they're all raised in huge outdoor ponds. Um, great, great life for them until they get shipped. And then because they're outdoors, they're exposed to these parasites, right? And then they don't recover from that. But the ones that are, that are let's say they give birth on route or like you put them in a tank and the next day they give birth and they die. But those babies that are raised up do fine. They're great. Um, so we, yeah, they would raise all the swordtails, mollies, platties, guppies, um, blue rams that don't ship well at all. Um, it, yeah. So those are kind of a, those are like the ones that would be raised in house. And they're, they were typically, they're also on top of being hard with the shipping and just not come pulling through very well. The other thing is that if it's a fish that every pet store needs to have, then we're going to, we're going to have, them, you know, and we're going to make sure that they're, they're as healthy as possible by breeding them. Yeah. I think I'm definitely going to jump on and see if I can, uh, if this pet store, and it was Pierce Pets, correct? Pruce. Pruce Pets. <laughs> Pruce Pets. Okay. P-R-E-U-S-S. People have heard called Prius Pets. <laughs> Prius Pets. Heard it all. Heard at least, it all. at yeah. least I didn't say Prius Pets. Um, no, <laughs> but Hey, it's uh yeah, you, you may get a little in a little trouble with that one with the, uh, with the fine folks at Toyota. So Pruce pets, mm-hmm. um, I definitely want to go on like YouTube and, and Facebook and see if they put up any videos of their, of their quarantine room or more so their breeding room. It sounds like, uh, they'd have some pretty good video content to, to share with people oh, yeah. if they have that up. Um, and so lastly, Heather, you've, uh, put together a, um, kind of list of, at a minimum, some things that you highly recommend for somebody to have uh, for a quarantine room for their own personal at-home use. And so um, you've kind of broken it out into a few different categories um, of treating parasites and fluke worms, flatworms, bacterial infections. Yeah. So um, if you want to, do you have that in front of you or do you want me to read them off to you? I, I, I know it. I know. <laughs> off the top <laughs> of your head. There you go. Uh, no, yeah. I, I shot you an email before we did this talk. But, um, no, it, it's, and I thought about it a little further. And if we're looking at like the very bare minimum for the average home aquarist, um, if you're just going to have a few community tanks and maybe a few quarantine tanks, because, um, uh, you know, the, the, the biggest pitfall for anyone with a community tank is that they don't quarantine their fish. Um, so if you're going to have just a handful of tanks like that, you know, the things that you're going to want to have no matter what. Um, cause you're not probably going to be buying fish every weekend. You know, you're probably not going to be, I'm going to buy fish here and buy fish here. You're probably going to have one source that you're just in my local pet store is what I buy. And if you're going to want to have some handy meds in case anything disastrous happens, the ones, um, the, I think of the top four I'd recommend, um, would be your two ick treatments, which are going to be Riddick or Paragard. And the reason there's two is because and for your specific tanks, you might not need both. If you have no interest in keeping puffers or loaches or, you know, so Paragard's kind of more mild one that'll be safer for scaleless fish and more sensitive fish. Um, and then your Riddick, I think, is the one that you really, really should have no matter what um, because it's less, it's a little bit stronger and uh, I think it really gets the job done. And, um, so those are both great to have. Um, and then because you're going to, you're going to see it at some point, if you're a fish hobbyist, you're going to see it. Um, and it's completely treatable, you know, um, so you just want to make sure you have it on hand. Um, and then the other things that are pretty, pretty standard and pretty effective, um, would be 
uh, nitrofurosaurin green. They call they sell it as Furan 2. A lot of times, uh, I think it's under the API brand, uh, Aquarium Pharmaceuticals. Um, and uh, it's a powder, and it turns the water green. But it's probably one of the most effective treatments um, for bad bacterial, like really bad infections. If you have an animal with dropsy, that's the only thing I can tell you to try that might work. Um, that being said, dropsy is usually fatal. But so under uh, even even for less extreme circumstances, it's a pretty effective uh, antibacterial. Um, and then neomycin in conjunction with that, or just in general, uh, is a good mild antibiotic. And those are the top ones I'd recommend. Now, that being said, I sent you a list with a few others. Um, if you are keeping fish from here, there, everywhere, um, having something called ProsiPro would be really helpful in a lot of cases for killing off things like flukes, um, external parasites specifically. Um, so um, I know uh, with salt water, a lot of times people will dip them in prosy to knock off any flukes and stuff like that. You can always, I think you can do that with fresh water too. Uh, do like a five minute dip or so in prosy, um, like full strength and watch, see if anything comes off. But yeah, the other things that you can have and that are also useful for more mild situations would be like uh, uh, Melifix or Pemafix, which are great for, oh, it's something just starting or I'm not entirely sure this is an issue. There's a few torn fins. It's not red. Put a little bit of Melifix in there. Um, if you're seeing a little bit of fungal stuff going on, uh, it's not super nasty, do Pemafix. If it's really nasty, do Furin too. Um, and then the only other thing I can think of would be something called metronidazole, which is great for if you're going to medicate internally, if you're trying to um, coat the food with some sort of medicine for internal parasites um, specifically. Very cool. And again, uh, you know, you have several years of like direct experience in a quarantine room mm -hmm. um, applying these medicines. And I think your top four, if we were to price them out, you could probably have like the smallest, um, you know, amount that they sell and you'll probably be mm -hmm. maybe a 25, $30 investment. It's not for, much. Yeah. yeah I, I, I want to say the Furin sells for like maybe 10 bucks for like a, you know, a package with like a, a handful. I, I forget how many packets, maybe like 10, 12 packets, a, um, I think each one treats like maybe a 10 gallon tank. Um, but yeah, you know, just to have on hand, um, yeah, the Paragard's inexpensive. Riddick is pretty inexpensive. Um, metronidazole can be a little bit pricey and neomycin can be just because you don't get a lot for it. Uh, but if you're going to have just a few tanks and you just want to have something on hand in, in case, it's great. Yeah, I mean, especially if any of those tanks are community tanks where, you know, as you as you add you know, fish to a community tank, uh, the dollar signs, your investment into that tank in electricity and water changes in food and the actual price of the fish to purchase, it could add up. So, mm -hmm. you know, 20, 30 bucks to protect your investment um, is not, you know, it's not, not that much to ask. No, not really. No, it's pretty easy. And I think a lot of places carry it. I was in Canada. Doing talks, so you said in the beginning, you know, I do talks in uh, 
the U.S. and Canada. Well, I, I've done my fish health talk there. And the thing is, I think over there you have harder time accessing these, which is worth noting. I think the EU as well. Um, yeah, I think in Europe they also have um, because, they're, yeah. because they're considered medicines. Again, I'm not an expert on why, um, no, but I think it falls no, into but, a very yeah. strict category. And, um, and it's, it's banned. Like, it's very difficult for them to get these. Yeah, but in the U.S., it's fine. I can go to pretty much any pet store and get most of these things, um, especially, I will say, independent retailers are where you want to go for these things. Awesome. Well, Heather, thank you so much for all of your insights and and sharing all of your experiences that you have, um, you know, your, your beginnings in the hobby, breeding Daniels, catching wild native fish, um, and now more recently talking about your experience working in a pet store and sharing your, your quarantine room experience with us. Um, lastly, I would say, you know, you do speak um, at at fish clubs and you do take engagement. So if somebody wanted to reach out to you and said, yeah, you know, you're you're like one or two states over or, you know, another Michigan fish club and they want to have you out to talk about um, any of you, the, to- the topics that you specialize in, uh, what's a good way for somebody to reach out to you? And I can also link it in the show notes. Yeah. So, uh, well, honestly, probably the best way is Facebook because I think we're, we all kind of live there sometimes. Uh, that's definitely, um, that's how you reached out to me. So that was really helpful. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, um, uh, otherwise email is great. Um, I, uh, I was using my university of Michigan, uh, email, but I think that's going to end pretty soon. So I'm, I'm going to say on the safe side, uh, you can email, um, my, uh, MSU. So I'm an alumni. So you can, you can email, uh, B-U-R-K-E. So Burke, H-E-2, at msu.edu. And I will have that also in the show notes as well. So just in case you you missed that, you can always go in there and find uh, Heather's contact information. And uh, again, as you hear, uh, you know, through this conversation, Heather is a wealth of knowledge, um, you know, very, very well-rounded in the hobby, has collected many, many different species. And if you want to have her come and talk about cockroaches or snakes or any of the other critters (laughs) that she keeps, uh, we didn't even touch on it here. Um, and also, no. uh, um, another update with Heather is that she's now working at a pet store or a, a wholesaler for saltwater, correct? Correct. Yep. And so we don't talk much about saltwater here, but it is pretty cool. So she also has that under her belt now. Um, so again, just a fountain of knowledge. Heather, thank you so much. I really appreciate it and hope to have you back on soon. Okay. All right. Thank you. All right. Have a good night, Heather. What a wide ranging interview with Heather Burke. If you have any influence in deciding who gets to speak at your club, I would strongly recommend you consider inviting Heather to come speak about breeding Daniels, collecting native fish, or fish health. How often do you get to have someone as accomplished at such a young age as Heather? Having her in your speaker lineup will certainly let your club see that the hobby is alive and well with the younger generations. That does it for this episode, so get involved in your local fish club, help grow this wonderful hobby, and have fun with other fish nerds.